0: From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it.
1: Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Nilay Patel, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. This week, I sat down with Patrick Spence. He's the CEO of Sonos, who's joined by Eddie Lazarus, the Sonos chief legal officer. Now, I wanted both Patrick and Eddie on the show to talk about when a company like Sonos makes the decision to head to the courts and increasingly Congress to protect its business. Sonos has long accused other tech giants of stealing its tech, but in 2020, it actually sued Google for patent infringement. Sonos said that it had disclosed details about how its technology worked during negotiations to integrate Google's voice assistant, and that Google had copied the tech and then released cheaper products it subsidized with revenue from search advertising. Sonos recently won that patent lawsuit at the U.S. International Trade Commission, which ruled that Google infringed all five patents Sonos brought to court. In response, Google had to change how some of its speakers worked, including reducing some functionality. Google is, of course, appealing all this, but you just don't see it very often. And software patents are pretty controversial to begin with. So I wanted to understand how Patrick and Eddie decided to take the risk of a lawsuit here. And more specifically, Sonos claims Google actually infringes over 150 patents. So how did they pick five to sue over? Patrick and Eddie have also both testified before Congress in the past few years specifically about competition and antitrust issues. Sonos is a small public company compared to the tech giants, and they both say their tech gets ripped off all the time, and that companies like Amazon and Google intentionally sell their products at a loss and use their search tools to rank their products higher even when people are looking for Sonos products. It's a big claim, and I wanted to push on it a little, and push on when that kind of lobbying effort becomes important enough to spend time on. This is a fun one. Patrick and Eddie are both pretty direct, even though, I gotta say, interviewing a CEO with his lawyer in the room, uh, can sometimes get a little dicey. You'll see what I mean. Okay, Patrick Spence and Eddie Lazarus from Sonos. Here we go. Patrick Spence, you're the CEO of Sonos. Welcome to Decoder.
2: Thanks, Eli. Great to be back.
1: Great to talk to you again. And we also have Eddie Lazarus, the chief legal officer at Sonos. Welcome. Hey there. Good to be here. So I'm glad to have you both. Sonos is in the middle of a few kind of big policy issues in tech. There is the ever-present patent litigation discussion that happens. There's antitrust law. You both have testified before Congress in the United States recently. You recently won part of a patent lawsuit against Google. The result not actually Google speakers changing some functionality. I want to talk about all of that. Specifically, I want to talk about, as the CEO and chief legal officer, how you make decisions to engage that function as part of your company's operations. But we got to ask the decoder questions. we got to start at the start. Patrick, you took over in 2017 as That's CEO. Yep. You and I have talked a, a bunch of times since then. One of the things you have mentioned to me over the years is your desire to change the culture of Sonos when you first started, to make it a more nimble organization. I think your phrase is bias to action, which I have ruthlessly stolen, I will tell you, and innovate faster, basically. How was Sonos structured when you took over? How have you changed that structure?
2: We really set out an ambition to deliver two new products a year going from at that point, uh, I think it was one product over the past couple of years or, you know, and and kind of haphazardly. And so it was really, you know, this intentional bias to action to ship products um, that we felt could add to the system and be of high quality, but at the same time. You know, not get into the cycle that some companies are in of just, you know, shipping the same stuff every year and these kind of things. And so I felt that was a good balance for really what we try to do. And so we structured the entire organization around that. So now, you know, we have at my leadership level, we have three different product leaders, actually four in the conversation. we made it very product centric in terms of what we're doing, you know, and you can see um, it's working in our results and our model and our system is working, right? Like the biggest thing at the end of the day is how we're different than everybody else out there with our business model in the sense that, we bring out products which our existing customers buy more of. They tell their friends and family to join Sonos and then we keep introducing at least two new products a year that help bring more people in, increase the products per home and we kind of have this uh, flywheel that goes and goes through it but you know it's been cultural change throughout the entire organization so whether it's product or go to market but we've really you know kind of ramped up our activity we have just moved faster you know quite frankly and obviously we have started to get into new categories as well and that's an important part of it because i think the other thing is we'll do you know roughly two billion dollars in sales this year the global audio market is 89 billion dollars right a year in sales and so there's a lot of room for us to you know seize more opportunity And I think we do it in a unique way, right? Like I keep saying, we're the story of software eating audio, and that's a lot of room to run, to take more and more of that $89 billion. So I feel like the team's done an incredible job. You know, it was probably an advantage that we were distributed from the start, starting simultaneously in Santa Barbara, Boston, adding Seattle along the way, uh, obviously Amsterdam we've had china um in the mix malaysia now as well and so when the pandemic struck as well we were able to more easily shift because we are already using video chat all of the the things that so many companies picked up in the pandemic that was already normal you know course of operating for us and so you also saw during the pandemic we didn't lose any steam in terms of our new product introductions we've been doing two new products a year and the team's done an incredible job So. You know, I'm the kind of person where I think the actions speak louder than words. So, um, just look at our track record and kind of the actions that we have taken over the last five years. And I'm super proud of the team. And I think we're just at the beginning of the opportunity ahead with, uh, you know, such a big market to go after and, and a lot of new categories we don't play in yet.
1: You mentioned the pandemic and obviously remote work. Have you changed where you're hiring? Are you still hiring in Santa Barbara and Boston and right? Or are you, you can hire anywhere now cause it's their software
2: jobs. We shifted that. So I'll I'll say a couple of things on that. One is we started to hire from anywhere and that's been tremendous in terms of tapping into new talent pools. And I think a lot of people have, you know, kind of gone through this period and reevaluated where they want to work. And when that's happened, I think we have an advantage in that. We have a really great culture. Um, we build a product that people love and that they love and are proud to share with their friends and family. Um, so we've been able to pick up some talent we never would have been able to before. And so it's been a real advantage for us. Our attrition has stayed steady through this period. So we're not seeing you know a great resignation. Uh, in fact, I think it's an advantage for us. And I think the other really important thing is prior to the pandemic, we had 15%, five percent you know, working from home. And what we did is, you know, we have these amazing people inside the organization. Our strategy was have a conversation with your manager about where, you know, you can be most effective going forward. And so our rough number from that is that we'll have about 60% um, working from home, you know, post-pandemic. We obviously have, you know, we're building great hardware and some of these things. So some people need to be in the office. But again, I think in this day and age, you know, if you're hiring the kind of people that we do, they will know where they can be most effective. And we don't need to, you know, lay out some rule or one size fits all our team will figure out how to work best and most effective. But that is a pretty big, you know, kind of shift in terms of what we're doing uh, from work from home. And so we'll need to make sure that we're doing the kind of things that the office helped serve a purpose for, for connection in particular, right? And so that's one of those things that we're being very thoughtful about how we bring people together. I just had my team together in person last week, and there's still nothing like that for certain conversations, right? Discussions, debates, uh, and just you know, having dinner and lunch and breaking bread together. So it's going to look very different. I think anybody who says they know exactly what it's going to look like a year or two from now is just fooling themselves. I think we're going to learn, we're going to iterate as we go through this, but I am so excited about the fact that we're adding people and we're adding a lot of people, you know, throughout the country. And so we've kind of taken the shackles off of where we are located and our offices are located and we're picking up great talent um, to add to our already amazing team.
1: How big is uh, the Sonos team? How
2: many people do you have? One thousand seven
1: hundred nineteen. Down down to the one. That's pretty impressive.
2: Hey, I try uh, and I try to know you know all <laughs> the names and the backgrounds and as much as I can. I I do like to keep it you know I try to keep it as small as possible in terms of that feeling uh, culturally, but it's uh, it's hard, certainly at this number.
1: You mentioned hardware. What's the split between the people who work on hardware and the people who work on software?
2: Yeah, it's about two thirds software. About a third hardware right now, so that's kind of the mix of our, you know, the, on the engineering side, and I think that's a surprise to most people, right, uh, in terms of how many people are there. And uh, but, but you know, it is the magic of Sonos; it's the way the system works together. Um, it really is the core uh, of the system, and and why we can introduce new products that make the system better over time.
1: It seems like once you commit to the magic is the software, you're software costs and tends to just grow like we had the cto of john deere on the show and he's like we now employ more software engineers than tractor mechanical engineers which is utterly surprising if you think about it. but it does seem like once you make that decision it is inevitable that you will employ and spend more resources on software than hardware
2: i think that's right from everything i've seen i think that is right and you want to keep I think we've created a a world in where customer expectations continue to increase as well. And so you want to be bringing out new features and functions and you know making sure you're making it better over time. Wi-Fi networks are changing all of these things. And so it is a, an evergreen investment. And then the other thing that most companies like ours are thinking is other areas you can go. And so you're always investing ahead of the curve as well. And so we're hiring people in software to go into new areas that – Uh, We're not in today, and so uh, that's the other thing that I think if you looked at it, it's easier in hindsight because then you understand oh, they were working on all of these great things, Um, we just didn't see it at that moment in time.
1: How many blockchain engineers do you have at SONUS?
2: We're watching the whole web (laughs) three, you know, area to see what its impact on uh, music and the industry will be at this point, but. For me, the real test with like Web3, blockchain, all of these areas is what's been built that, you know, solves a customer problem, you know, in a better way. And I hear a lot about the technology, obviously, from my perspective, I get kind of into that and I love to see the new technology and talk about some of the possibilities. But at the same time, I'm really looking for those, you know, customer problems to solve. And I just haven't seen the technology yet applied in a way that there's an aha moment for consumers, right? And so we'll keep an eye on it, you know, see what uh, what develops in that particular area. But that's kind of what I'm looking for is, you know, actual customer problems being solved by this as opposed to, you know, technologies that, you know, potentially hold a lot of promise. Because you and I, over the last 20 years, have seen there's always lots of technologies and lots of, you know, kind of philosophical discussions about what they might do. But um, when it comes down to brass tacks, like what, Problems are we actually solving is something I'm still trying to figure out with some of the Web3 technologies.
1: I think that is true for many of us. Um, So, investing in engineers and hardware tooling, right, just kind of on the spreadsheet, you can see, okay, if we get this right, it'll pay off, right? This will generate revenue in the end. Poor Eddie's over there. The lawyers just cost you money. (laughs) They rarely make money for any company unless you run a law firm. How do you think about, okay, Eddie needs resources to go talk to Congress to fight patent lawsuits. Eddie, how big is your team?
3: Uh, Around the world, uh, we have uh, 26.
1: 26. And then you obviously have like outside counsel and things like that, too.
3: We have uh, more lawyers than you can shake a stick at. Yes.
1: (laughs) So how do you two decide? Right. You you sit in the yearly budgeting meeting and you're like, all right, this is how much we're going to spend on hardware engineering. And this is how much we're going to spend on legal services. How do you make that decision?
2: I think I would go back to start from the fact that innovation is at the core of everything we do. So we have a long conversation on innovation and how much we need to be investing to continue to drive our business, right, and grow our business. And we're proud that we've been able to do that for the 17 years. Going on 17 years, we've shipped products, right, is grow every single year, despite all the new entrants jumping in to what we knew would be a big, you know, growing market we continue to grow and, you know, be successful in that. And so that is job one. And that is where, you know, 99% of my time goes. And then Eddie, you know, and I have a conversation with Brittany, our CFO around, okay, what's the right investment, you know, to make here, but it's really led from the strategy of what do we want to achieve, you know, in that particular area. And so we look at it and Eddie obviously looks at what do we need to serve the business, but then we as well say, Okay. What do we need to do to stand up, for instance, in the Google situation for, you know, our intellectual property? And remember, a big part of Eddie's team is on the intellectual property side. And so actually, you know, patenting the inventions that are there and collaborating with the engineering team, right? And that is, I would say, that's why your intellectual property people are here because they love the products as much as all of us do. And they want to make sure that we are protecting those inventions because we know that, This is a big, exciting space, and more and more people may want to uh, copy those. So, Eddie, I don't know if you want to add anything.
3: Well, one thing I just mentioned is that we have an incredibly small team that works on this. We don't have a single lobbyist, not one Sonos employee on the ground in Washington, D.C. We don't have anybody, uh, regulatory people in Europe. It's really the Sonos story that does the work for us. I have one fellow on my team who works part-time with me on the policy stuff. Uh, Otherwise, it's just me. I guess I have the advantage of having been born and raised in Washington, D.C. Uh, but the Sono story resonates. That's why we've been asked to testify on the Hill. That's why we've been asked to go in to see people in the White House. Uh, so that makes my job a lot easier and it, it lowers our investment costs because we, uh, yes, we have lots of lawyers that we hire uh, to litigate uh, around the world. but our, our costs in telling our story on the antitrust front uh, or uh, to the extent we do media around the IP work and and how uh, we defend our innovations, frankly it's uh, it's it's a very small band.
1: This is a totally random question and I think this might be the only podcast, only business podcast where anyone ever asked this question. When you are picking law firms, how do you do it? What's your process? what do you what do you think? Are you, are you like, I just vibe with these guys? or do Uh, do they do decks? How does that
3: work? So uh, I pick lawyers, not law firms. Uh, And I think it's a a very important distinction because uh, there are lots of wonderful law firms, but it's really, who is that thought partner going to be uh, at the firm? Someone who's really going to appreciate and understand the nature of our business and then apply all the appropriate uh, legal principles and someone who I have a lot of faith in or a team that I have a lot of faith in. On the the IP side, uh, we've been Uh, Joined at the hip with a a small boutique in the Midwest that comes from uh, where Mark Triplett, our head of IP, uh, resides. They understand our patent portfolio at an incredibly deep level. Uh, And then we coupled them with a major firm, Oric, which uh, has a reputation as, uh, if not the absolute best IP firm in the country, uh, one of the very best. And I've known one of the senior partners there in this area for it's got to be thirty years now, and so it's it's that combination of expertise and relationship because the relationship's crucial.
1: yeah, uh, I want to get into that stuff in more detail, but I just want to back out and spend a little more time on sort of what I think of decoder stuff. Um, Patrick, when you mentioned Sonos has been around for a long time. The business model in the early days was very simple, right you You made some speakers. I would go acquire some MP3s from wherever I acquired them from, ideally legally. I'd put them on my desktop computer. I would run a Sonos server application on my desktop and stream them to your speakers, and that was it. Now we live in a totally services-based world. All the music comes from me paying Apple or Spotify or Amazon or whoever potentially paying you for your radio service. That's a lot of partnership work. Yes, Right, like at the end of the day, you, you you need to have deals with Apple and Spotify and Google and whoever else. How much time do you spend tending to those partnerships?
2: A good deal uh, of time making sure that we have the partnerships that we need. Obviously, we have a team of people that are working on a daily basis and trying to stay on top of those partnerships and any changes in technology as well, APIs, like all, all of the things that need to be done in order to deliver a reliable service. The other part of it is understanding what's happening in the industry, right? And being able to make that shift, for instance, from, you know, digital downloads to streaming, right? And knowing how important it was to be engaging with all of those partners, because we want to be there, right, for our customers. Remember, like, the most important thing for us is being open and supporting all the services that matter to our customers. And so... We want to stay abreast of any of those changes. And so if something does happen in Web3, right, and there's a transition or a shift in terms of how music is delivered or serviced, we will be there to support it for our customers. And so staying tight with all of today's streaming services and technology leaders plus Trying to tap into new startups as well, and understanding what's happening in the space is where me and some of my team spends uh, you know an, enough time to be uh, trying to figure out the landscape. I would say every day I'm trying to figure out the landscape and you know consuming and reading as much you know as I can about what's happening in all of the audio spaces and, and technology beyond that. And you know, I mean, the pace of it all is so fast in this day and age, and just making sure that we're going to continue to stay ahead of the curve. You know, obviously my Growing up inside of uh, BlackBerry as well, you know, very much creates a paranoia um, (laughs) that I think is healthy in terms of making sure that we're building Sonos in a way that it will be here and make any, you know, kind of pivots or turns that it needs to to be successful for decades to come. And and that is the most important thing to me. And I, I think the real testament to... You know, my leadership is, you know, long after I'm gone is Sonos, you know, growing relevant and, you know, still around. And so that's what I think about every day. And that leads how I work with the team, how I think about the industry, who I engage with outside of Sonos. All of that is kind of the guiding light for, you know, where we need to go and and how I spend my time, quite frankly.
1: So this is the like the decoder question. How do you make decisions? What's your decision making framework?
2: Um, How do I make decisions? I guess it depends what the decision is, you know, ultimately in terms of where we, we are. I guess I would start with, you know, trying to build Sonos for decades to come, right? And working back from there in terms of what investments are we going to make today that position us well into the future? So what talent do we need on the team? how are we working as a team together? Where are we setting our priorities? And probably because I'm Canadian, it's pretty collaborative in terms of working closely, spend a lot of time with my leadership team, uh, both as a group and then one-to-one in terms of working through some of those issues, um, trying to find the best talent, trying to unleash the talent inside the organization and you know make the, make those decisions when you have to. Sometimes as well, you need to think about which decisions need to get made when, and oftentimes people will jump to make decisions too soon until they actually have to. And so I think one of the key jobs for a CEO is to determine when do you actually need to make a decision on something? And my goal, Eli, is not to make any decisions. In a perfect world, if I've built the team in such a way that, you know, I have leaders that are all better than me in their you know particular area, um, what I'm doing is trying to support them, guide them, be a sounding board in terms of making those decisions. And so it's my ultimate goal, you know, not to have to make any decisions because I'll have built a team that can make all of those decisions, you know, for the organization and, you know, and, and I try to train the organization that the person, you know, closest to. Uh, the action kind of has the ball on the decision, you know, because they will know more than anybody else. And I think that's been a learning, you know, over my career is trying to set up the organization to do that. And so key decisions are things like who you hire, right? And where you point the organization. There's two things that I say I spend my time on. One is strategy. The second is culture. And a big part of culture is making sure we have the right team um, and the the team set up in the right way to be successful. So that's kind of the way I think about decisions um, and the world.
1: So let's pick on one decision because I think it will be illuminating in a variety of ways. You recently launched a radio service. It's one of your newest products. There's a free tier and a premium tier that's $8 a month, adds a bunch of features, takes out the ads. That's a big decision, right? You're now in the content business. You have all these partners that you have to tend to that make the product go, but now you're competing with them. How did you make that call?
2: Looking at the experience we were delivering on the radio service that was there, and we, you know, as we looked at the service that we were providing, right, which was basically a directory of radio stations and those kind of things, one of the teams internally came up and said, Hey, like this just doesn't fit with the kind of experience that we deliver. And we want to, you know, we want to create something that we're more proud of as an organization. And we felt like we could do it. And so, you know, it was an area where I felt it would be complementary to what a lot of our partners are doing as opposed to, you know, anything that is really competitive, right? And what we really wanted to do was just reinvent it and learn and see what we could learn because I do think – being in the space as well helps us better serve and direct our partners. And so being transparent with our partners was key. So we were upfront with all of our partners and let them know what we were doing ahead of time. So they understood and understood where we felt it fit because most of our homes listen to both like radio service and then as well have an on-demand streaming service. So we also said it's not at the exclusion of, and that's been our uh, experience as well is that a lot of people have Sonos radio listen to it. I think it's our third most listened to service at this point, but they're still listening to Spotify, Apple Music, you know, YouTube music, whatever they subscribe to for on demand as well. But people have liked that. They've liked the curated station. I think in terms of sharing a bit of like what we're all about, you will see stations there that kind of are all about Sonos, whether it's the jazz station that Kareem Abdul Jabbar is doing or Erica Badu. We put out a couple every quarter, and it's really us as well, sharing with our customers, you know, our perspective on the world to some degree and the kind of artists that we think should be celebrated and those kind of things. And so we had some conversations internally of how does it fit with everybody else out there, but it's something I felt like we needed to do to keep growing as an organization and that it would be complementary to, uh, the other services offered. And so far that's been, you know, the, the learning as well as like, okay, people will listen to both. They want to lean back. And then at the same time, uh, they want an on-demand service.
1: So. Every tech company that veers into programming l- lands in this place where, we, well, you got to pay Kareem, right? You probably have to pay Erica Badu. Like, f- that's important. That's a big cost. But then you have to, now you're responsible for what they say or do or program, which I think has been shocking to many tech companies. <laughs> I'll just pick on Spotify. I think they've, they've gone through a, a, a long road here, a, a journey of discovery on what it means to be the programmer. Have you thought about that? Are you ahead of that curve? Do you have standards and practices for your radio station?
2: It, it fits with the brand. We're we're probably not ahead of the curve necessarily in terms of what's there, but we're certainly thoughtful about what we're putting out there. You'll see, we're not into podcasts um, in terms of what's on, <laughs> on Sotos Radio today.
1: Anything can happen on the show. Yeah, that's right.
2: That's right. Look, and I, and I think people can choose whether to listen, you know, or not, or they can choose another. So this is why. I think being open so that if somebody decides, hey, I don't want service A, you know, for whatever reason they choose, um, they can go to service B, right? And they can make that choice. And that's why being open about that's really important. And then we're just, you know, thoughtful about, you know, what does it say about Sonos based on the artists that we're bringing onto the platform? You know, and then, uh, I mean, I do feel a responsibility for that for sure. And so um, it reflects on us, of course, just like, you know the choice of any of the platforms out there and what they put on it does reflect on the company, of course.
1: When you go to start a service like that, I think obviously you guys have done a lot of partnership deals with the platforms, right? The yeah. Spotify's and Apple's of the world. Going to the labels and saying, we need access to music is kind of a different layer of the music rights stack. Eddie, is that a preset package that the labels have? Like here are some bulk licenses for people who want to do a radio station or did you have to like camera out Custom licenses for your product—it's
3: somewhere in the middle. Uh, it's largely a commoditized circumstance, but we have uh, some licensing folks who, you know, get into it with uh, with the major labels. But it's um, uh, it's not been a source of any contention or anything like that. It's it's pretty standard. It's pretty well defined at this point.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I'm really curious about, and this is kind of the opening to how do you compete with the, the tech giants? I look at your pricing tiers. It's free, and then if you want lossless HD radio, if you want higher quality music, and I, by mean, I mean like file quality, not actual quality, but if you want higher bitrate music, lossless music, you have to pay, right? And I'm, my assumption has always been that's because the labels charge higher rates for that higher quality. But then I look at Apple and they just like roll it out for free at the same price. And my assumption is that Apple's just taking the hit because they can afford it and Spotify maybe can't, or you guys maybe can't. Is Do you see that as a competitive dynamic?
2: You know, I think there's probably something to that, but I also think the labels are pretty smart, like Eddie said, about trying to, you know, keep it a pretty level playing field in terms of what's there and not not simply let it become a loss leader, you know, either. So I think there's, you know, there's it's probably somewhere in the middle in terms of where that is. Um, so, I mean, we feel like, you know, for our customers and what we're offering with Sonos Radio, that that is a good, you know, price point. And we're thinking about a consumer that's probably going to, as well, pay for an on-demand streaming service, right, and kind of go through that. But I think it's a pretty level playing field from the labels for the most part, from what we've seen.
1: But the labels don't care if they just want to get paid, right? So they're just charging the same rates to everyone. It's the price to the consumer where it seems like in order to make this math out for you and not be a money-losing proposition, you have to charge an appropriate rate with an appropriate margin. Absolutely. Whereas Apple can just be like, whatever, zero margin, we'll just keep the same price. And our lossless is cheaper than their lossless or Amazon's lossless or whatever else.
2: Yeah, there are some, what would I say, like conditions in terms of the different pricing. I don't know that you can just offer it for free, for instance, like those kind of things in terms of, you know, being able to offer, yeah, like anything for free necessarily, so.
3: The only thing I would just add about that is that, that this, the issue of cross-subsidization and pricing, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's very pervasive. This is not yeah. just a, you know, a radio uh, music licensing question. Uh, you know, we face this all the time on, on the hardware front, right, where certain players uh, make copycat-style products, they flood the market with them at either we would say probably below cost because they're actually not looking to make money on those products. Uh, they're feeding into whatever that dominant business is, whether it's search or, uh, or e-commerce or whatever it happens to be. Search, so, you say. Uh, <laughs> I just happened to mention that. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but uh, you know, kidding aside, I mean, that's a, that is a major problem, uh, this uh, issue of cross-subsidization and whether that ought to be considered uh, anti-competitive. So, let's get into it. This, I,
1: uh, this was the opening, right? It, it seems like on the, I can just look at the pricing of music services and say, okay, there, it seems like there's cross-subsidization here. It's way harder to look at the price of a Google Home and say, I know how much that should cost and this is cheaper than it should be. How do you, like When you're putting together your lawsuit against Google, how do you go about making a determination? It's like, this seems really
3: unfair and potentially illegal, and we're going to go make that case. Right. So we haven't uh, tried to make a case on cross-subsidization, frankly, because uh, the law on that topic, on predatory pricing, uh, over the years uh, has uh, uh, the standards become pretty much impossible to meet. And so one of the things we're advocating for on Capitol Hill is that they actually make some adjustments to the standard to modernize the law. But uh, but just, you know, in terms of how do you figure it out? Well, we don't have to figure it out because actually some of the top executives, when they testified in Congress, admitted that they were selling below cost. Yep. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so so it's, uh, you know, the, proof, uh, the proof's right there in the testimony. Yep.
1: We need to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk a little more about the Sonos lawsuit against Google and how Patrick made the decision to sue one of the largest companies in the world.
0: Support for Decoder comes from Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Whether you're seeking a location for your podcast, teaching language courses, or selling handcrafted ceramics, Squarespace has all the tools you need to create a home on the web. You can create a polished professional place that connects people with whatever it is you're excited about. Squarespace also supports all forms of connecting with those people, whether you're selling products online or in person, or offering memberships, you can make your website look exactly how you want it. They even have the tools to help you create a custom logo. And they make it easy to create a place for people to schedule an appointment with you, browse your services, or learn more about why you do what you do. Visit squarespace.com decoder for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code decoder to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Support for Decoder comes from Notion. Winter is beginning to wind down, and spring cleaning is just around the corner. In that spirit, it's time to declutter your digital workspace. For that, you might want to check out Notion. Notion combines your notes, docs, and projects into one space that's simple and beautifully designed. And the fully integrated Notion AI helps you work faster, write better, and think bigger, doing tasks that normally take you hours in just seconds. Personally, I use Notion to keep myself organized and to store all the information I need in one place. I've tried a lot of productivity apps over the years, and Notion is sleek, intuitive, and powerful. In particular, Notion has an AI feature called Q&A that allows you to search all of your notes by simply asking for what you're looking for. For me, that means old links to news stories, long lost notes to myself, and maybe even an old password to an account I might be trying to dig up. Seriously, give it a try. It's as easy as just asking a question. We all want to be sending less emails and tuning into less redundant meetings, and Notion could help you by automating tedious tasks like managing and summarizing notes. It'll also help you save money on all those tools you won't need anymore with Notion's integration. Over half of Fortune 500 companies rely on Notion to simplify their workflow and you can join them. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash to try the powerful, easy to use Notion AI today. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show, notion.com slash
1: We're back. Let's talk about the, the actual Google case, the patent case. You have multiple partners, Amazon and Google, for voice assistance. You want them both on your speakers. We have talked several times, Patrick, about wanting them both to be active at once. It seems like Google did not want that to happen, and then they potentially infringed on some of your technology to make their speakers go. Now you have a decision that says, actually, it did infringe. Let's start all the way back at the beginning. You're in that situation. When do you go to Eddie and say, I think we should sue Google? Or Eddie, when do you come to Patrick and say, I think we should sue Google?
2: We never want to get in a lawsuit, right? And so But you
1: weren't wandering the halls of Sono saying I never want to be in a lawsuit and then you like tripped and accidentally sued Google. Like you made a decision when to do it.
2: No, no, absolutely. (laughs) After all other, you know, avenues had, you know, come to a position where it didn't feel like we were making progress. And so, this, as you might imagine, this was not a decision I took very lightly. It involved Eddie, my leadership team, the board, and, and deciding, okay, th- th- it's time to do this. But we had tried to, uh, you know, address this constructively. Others in the industry, you know, are more constructive in their conversations with us. And it got to a point where I didn't feel it was constructive anymore, and we needed to take action to both stand up for you know, really consumers in terms of having that ability to uh, use this concurrently because it exists, we've shown it, I think you saw it, we can do that. And as well, stand up for all the inventions that we've had. We have over a thousand patents, you know, um, Google, I think, infringes over a hundred of those today. Over hundred and fifty. hundred and fifty. And so, you know, it felt like it was the time to say, you know, no, I'm not going to let you get away with, you know, simply... Infringing on everything we do and you know, we decided then to um, take the path that we have
1: You said you had to engage your board you go to the board meeting say we're gonna do this What is the case you lay out or is it just I think we have to do it and everyone nods and you're off to the races?
2: It's something that we talked about a lot on the way to the decision as well. So, you know, I'm keeping the board up to date on our partnerships, right? Our conversations with all of our key partners as we go through this and kind of where we are. Um, So they weren't surprised when I came to them because they knew um, I felt like it wasn't heading in a, a constructive direction. And then their, I mean, fundamentally their job is to, you know, help, you know, decide whether to keep me on or fire me um, and then, you know, (laughs) be a sounding board on, you know, strategic questions, right? And so uh, they were a great sounding board. We had a, uh, you know, a fantastic discussion uh, and debate about the pros and cons. And then they fundamentally said, all right, you know, Patrick, you know, call the shot in terms of where we're going. And I felt very confident given, you know, some of our earlier experience with this. And then the fact that, you know, I knew we had invented the space and the category. And obviously the other thing, as I said, that I do is I'm watching what's happening in the industry, right, as well. And so, you know, I also, you know, beyond my responsibilities, uh, I guess I would say, as CEO of SOTOS is to be watching what's happening a little broader in the industry and saying, okay, there's a pattern, you know, of whether you look at Google Photos and taking out all the photo sharing services back when they made Google Photos free. And all those services, then they drove out of business and then they, well, imagine that they, they actually, you know, <laughs> put a price on Google Photos or, you know, what they did to Eero in terms of copying their technology and, you know, underpricing them and kind of driving them out of business is there's a pattern. And so tried to address that constructively, and then said, look, like we're in a position because of the business we've built, because of the innovation we continue to drive, that we can take this on. And so it's the right thing for Sonos, and it's the right thing for tech more generally, I would say, to, uh, to take them on. So
1: the argument there is Sonos has been around for a long time. It's invented a lot of stuff. You have a large patent portfolio that Maybe a company like Eero, which was much younger, had not acquired or built, and Eero eventually had to sell itself to Amazon. You're saying, well, this is our tool. This is our leverage to go into these conversations and get Google or whoever to come to the table in a more fair way. That's the strategy. Tactically, Eddie, you've got to go into that patent portfolio and
3: pick some to litigate. How do you make that call? That's a really good question. It's such an unusual circumstance where you have the luxury of being able to choose. The situation where some uh, a competitor has come into your space and basically taken, you know a, a huge percentage of uh, your patents and infringed them,' that's, that's highly, highly, highly unusual. Uh, usually, the choice is made for you because you've just got a few patents at issue. But here we uh, we decided we would take uh, our first generation patents first. So that's, you know, set up. Uh, The synchronization of speakers, group volume, stereo pairing, the things that really were part of that first generation. Of multi-room home audio discovery that Sonos pioneered, you know, back in, in the early part uh, of the company's history. Later on, uh, we actually filed a second case uh, on a second generation of patents, which are our direct control and zone scenes patents, and that's that's pending in federal court now. Because we wanted, it's it's not really just about that original conception. We've been solving problems and innovating generation after generation of this company. Every generation of that innovation is being uh, infringed by Google. So it's, it's, it's not just been one set of choices, we've done it twice. And uh, from our perspective, uh, my job was to assess the strength of the case, uh, to make sure that if Patrick wanted to move forward in this way, that we were rock solid. And I know you mentioned that, that legal departments uh, are a cost center as opposed to a value generator, but uh, you know, well, we wouldn't have done this if we didn't think that there was going to be a very substantial return on investment. Maybe not in the immediate future, but in the relatively near future, measured by litigation, which is, uh, you know, several years, of course. That's actually interesting, right? Because some of those
1: patents you had litigated before, I think, with Denon. Correct. They had a a system called Heos. So you kind of knew those were good, right? You've you've taken the court. You've won with them. They're solid. There are others that you are putting at risk, right? The court, like Google's going to say these patents are invalid or we're not infringing or something. And the court might agree. So how do you make that call between these are the ones we've won with before, these
3: are the ones we're going to put at risk? Uh, So I was new to uh, Sonos when we started making these uh, decisions. I I started here at the beginning of 2019. Discussions with Google had been going on for some time before I arrived. But one of the first things uh, as a kind of outsider to the culture that I wanted to get comfortable with is that uh, our portfolio was just as strong as we internally felt it was and as the law firm in Chicago that helped us build that portfolio thought it was. So I actually brought in a, a second firm to make an, an independent assessment so that I made sure we weren't just drink, drinking our own Kool-Aid about the strength <laughs> of our portfolio. It was a combination of, of expert judgment uh, that led me to the strong conviction that we, our patents were going to survive what was an unbelievable onslaught by Google. And every one of them survived, right? Five for five. That very rarely happens that you win validity on all the patents that are up. uh, And, of course, we won on infringement on all five as well. That's just um, – it's important to recognize how unusual that is. And that just shows that the preparation, the careful thought that went into this, the reflection, uh, and the ultimate taking of the action, you know, it's been vindicated in court. And we expect that to continue in other cases.
1: We have spent a lot of time talking about Google. That's obviously who you're suing. Amazon is right there. They run the same playbook. People have the same complaints about Amazon. Previously, you have said, well, we can't sue them both. right?" Are the conversations there different? Are they meaningfully better? Or is it just, let's see how this one goes, and we'll turn our attention?
2: I would take you back to uh, my point about the decision to sue Google um, and take this path is we kind of came to the end of the road on constructive conversations. And so you can imagine that we will only go to that, you know, pretty drastic measure if we're not having constructive conversations with anyone and everybody in the smart speaker space is infringing on our intellectual property.
1: I feel like I can hear some of my listeners already. Software patents are contentious in our industry these are all fundamentally software patents. They're already saying, they're screaming in their cars. You should not be able to patent controlling the volume on multiple speakers at once. You should not be able to patent a setup flow. And I realize the actual patents are much more detailed and specific about how those things work. But conceptually, you should not be able to monopolize that kind of idea in in, in the way the patent system currently allows.
3: How would you respond to that? think that's just wrong. I think these are fundamental inventions that solved problems that nobody else had been able to solve before. And you go all the way back to the U.S. Constitution, it recognizes the fact that that kind of inventorship deserves uh, IP protection. And so that's the key, which is a problem no one else has solved before, You solve it in a unique way. Uh, You don't have unlimited scope as to what those patents can say, Mm -hmm. and they have to be very specific. And if somebody else just comes in and basically rips that off, uh, that's wrong, and they ought to pay you a royalty for it. That's all we've ever sought, which is give us fair value for this. Google markets its speakers every day on things that Sonos actually invented and that they took from us. That's just wrong. And uh, for one of the largest companies in the history of the world to do that, is wrong, and so uh, we uh, we're going to hold them to account in court until they're willing to come to the table and give us uh, a fair royalty.
2: And I think everything in hindsight, people look at, you know, and they say, "Oh, well, that of course that thing's obvious. That thing's obvious." It wasn't, you know, when we invented it and the hard work that went into creating it, bringing it to life, bringing that product there, and you know, the system is designed so that those that invent can go and, you know, build on those inventions and go create businesses, right, and employ lots of citizens and not have people simply use their balance sheet to copy and try and, you know, destroy other companies. And I think it's very easy with hindsight to say, oh, well, that's obvious, but it wasn't at the time. These are all inventions. And so I think people need to step back from that potential knee-jerk reaction and understand why we have a system the way we do and the way that it's being abused right now to eliminate competition. And you know some people will say, well, that that's great because now they're selling it under cost. As we saw with Google Photos, they will sell it under cost until they've driven competition out of the market and then they will gouge customers. I mean, that just is the way that these things work. And so I don't think people are fully, like it's easy with hindsight to look at it and be cynical, but I think as you play it forward as well, It gets to what kind of society do we want and do we want all of this coming down to, you know, a couple of companies that, you know, have all the power because fundamentally, while it may not be today that the prices rise and that as consumers were paying the price, it will be in the future. So just think about where this goes and why the system was set up the way that it was, because it was done by, you know, very smart people trying to help create some guardrails and rules that help build society.
3: The other thing I'd say about that is that it's certainly true that patent litigation at times has been abused. You know, you have companies who will just buy up patent portfolios and, and sue people to make a quick buck, and that's a problem. but that's not a problem that should be solved by uh, punishing companies that are truly innovative, uh, have solved problems that no one else has solved before, and who are facing a competitor who is actually taking those inventions. so uh, you know the the patent troll issue is it's it's generally known uh, is is a it's a real one. We get sued by trolls not infrequently, but solving that by uh, undermining the value of innovation uh, is really not the way to go about it.
1: So actually, I gotta I gotta bring up your BlackBerry history here, right? Like I've been saying, the lawyers are not a uh, a revenue generator, but you look at a company like BlackBerry, you look at tech giants of the past, and they're like final form. Is like luxury patent troll, right? Like that's where they just end up. They're like we 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 don't make any products anymore, but we have this huge portfolio. Right, you are licensing. Like what you want out of Google is a revenue stream, right? You have a revenue stream from some of these other companies that you've litigated with. Is that meaningful? Is that material to you? Is that something you want to extend?
2: I guess I would step back from it and say we want to make sure that we're properly compensated for the inventions, but. It is so that we can fuel more innovation, hire more people, you know, create more products. And so let's not forget, like, why we're doing this at the end of the day. And so a couple things. One is that through this entire period, again, we've been continuing to innovate, introduce new products. You know, we, that is where the bulk of our investment and our time and our energy goes and I think the other side of that coin is that, hey, if we are inventing things, people shouldn't just be able to you know copy those things and put those out into the world and do that is just plain wrong. And so, yeah, we think that if people are going to do that, I mean, we even published our patents, right, publicly. So everybody knows what patents we have. And you can go see those and you can work around them if well, you but, but, want right, to invent. But I'm
1: saying the patent is a deterrent for bad actors. Yep. And then leverage and negotiate. I get that part. The patent portfolio as a revenue stream is the other part. Yeah. And I'm curious if you're thinking about that part as important to your business.
3: It will never be. In fact, we just talked about this at our offsite at Patrick's no. house uh, this week. This should never be thought of as the fundamental aspect of our business. This is something that can help, uh, as Patrick said, drive our investment in the business, increase our uh, R&D budgets. But the core of Soda's business is never going to be, you know, go litigate and get a bunch of yeah. uh, patent royalties. Uh, this this is just trying to level the playing field with the big actors and not let them abuse the competitive situation by just taking what we invented uh, for free, because it didn't, it wasn't free for us to invent it. I'll tell you that. Yep. <laughs> All right, one more patent question that I want to talk about: lobbying Congress.
1: And then honestly, I'm just going to ask Patrick for new products for like. That <laughs> um, last thing, right? You've got a portfolio. You need to write patents expire, so you need to keep refreshing the portfolio. Eddie, I don't think most people have any conception of how that works. So just give people a view into how a company like Sonos takes what engineers and designers make and turns them into patents.
3: One of the most fun aspects of the business for for my IP team uh, is meeting with the engineers regularly in these brainstorming sessions. And what they're always looking for is, uh, uh, you know, and, and by the way, they, they think of themselves as inventors in and of themselves. Some of uh, uh, my lawyers are actually inventors on patents. So it's it's a symbiotic relationship with the uh, with the engineering teams where uh, uh, they're in a room whiteboarding. And if there's something that really feels novel enough and interesting enough to go think about an Actual patent, then they start they start working on it together. So that's the fun stuff that occurs uh you know out of everybody's uh, line of sight but is the generational process of capturing one wave of innovation after the other and and we've had you know three or four waves of innovation here at, at Sonos and we're tackling the next set of problems you know as we speak uh you know we even have an OKR uh, objective and key result is is uh, to use the jargon around how many of these inventive sessions we're going to have with the product team every year and so uh, we actually measure that because it's a statistic by which we can uh, assess whether we're keeping that vitality in the company. Obviously, you're suing
1: Google. We talked a little bit about partnerships and how you need them. How has this litigation affected your relationship with Google? Is it strained It is it made it better? Is that siloed? How does that work?
2: Uh, it's pretty siloed their side so i mean you know youtube music continues to go along we continue to have google assistant so i mean it's been you know i I think they know obviously with us as well testifying in congress and congress being very supportive of making sure that there's no retaliation for doing that um, (laughs) i think they've been on you know their best behavior as well
1: have there been talks like we're just going to do both assistants at once and settle these cases
2: we remain open to you know trying to uh, solve this in other I've ways. I've never
1: had a CEO with their lawyer in the room. <laughs> and I got to tell you, the audience can see this, but I can see them. Eddie just shot you a look. He was like... <laughs> Just like lasering the no comment into your brain, it was it was why, impressive. Why I
3: don't know why Patrick would listen to that any more than anything else. He he's got his own mind about what he
1: wants to say. This is it's way more intense than when like the PR person is like, on the other, right? Like the actual lawyer is right there. We've got to take another break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about what it's like to testify in front of Congress.
0: Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow.
1: Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? the most valuable business making your money work harder that's how you business differently intuit quickbooks banking services provided by green dot bank member fdic only funds and envelopes are an apy apy can change at any time we're back with patrick spence and eddie lazarus the ceo and chief legal officer of sonos both of you have testified before congress this is, I, you know, it's a reasonably high stakes event. You've got to look good. You've got to prepare. How does that begin? How, do you call a congressperson and say, yo, I want to testify? Is it a staffer? What, what is that process like?
3: Well, there's, there's not one way to, to go about that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it was no secret that Congress was opening up a series of inquiries into big tech and uh, competition. And uh, we did feel it was important for at least a Plug into that process and and understand what was going on and you know that's how it starts and then uh, as I said earlier it's the Sonos story that does the work once people hear the origins of Sonos what it did what it's experiencing in the business uh, uh, in the business environment in its relationships with uh, with some of the larger platform players then it shifts. It's, uh, we're not going to them, they're, they're coming to us because they understand that having examples, real world, detailed, and frankly, kind of uh, easily understood examples is very important. And the Sonos story with respect to competition is very straightforward. And so that's why we've been asked to tell it uh, several times. So
1: one of the things here about that story, right, is now the story involves some amount of political positioning. And I would say... Competition law is maybe not as heated as other elements of our politics, but it's still not necessarily totally bipartisan. And you can see you – know, there's a range of companies now that have taken political positions against the tech giants. Epic comes to mind. Spotify comes to mind. Sonos comes to mind. How did you make the decision to have the political activism become part of that Sonos story?
3: Well, I, d- I don't know that, that it really is political activism uh, on our part. First of all, I'd say it is totally bipartisan. On the Senate side, uh, the two major antitrust bills uh, were voted out of committee overwhelmingly. I think 16 to 6 in one case, and I think it was an even bigger margin uh, in the second case. So it, it is bipartisan, and it's a real problem. We're not thinking about it in terms of Republican or Democrat. We think that there is an overwhelming sense that the antitrust laws need to be refurbished for the digital age and indeed brought back to some of the the theorizing that that gave rise to those uh, laws in the first place, you know, a hundred and something years ago. So for us, it's just a a straight policy matter and one where we think our relationship with the big tech companies uh, is a good example of why there should be some modernization and exactly what that modernization should be. And so we focus on the the anti-self-preferencing. It should just be a level playing field for everybody, kind of a golden rule of do unto others as you would do unto yourself. Uh, And second, interoperability, because if you don't have greater interoperability, the smart home and other very important new markets uh, are going to devolve down to just a very few huge players. And we think that's horrible for the public, for the consuming public, bad for innovation. And Sonos is a very, uh, you know, it has a kind of a central role in, in all that uh, as as one of the very few choice-oriented uh, OSs. Uh, and so that's why we felt it was important to tell our story.
1: So I'm, I'm looking at lobbying figures here. Google spent $9.6 million lobbying in 2021. Apple, Amazon, they all spent similar amounts. At the start of the show, you're like, well, it's just me and half of another guy. Do you feel outgunned, right? It's. It, I think Commonly, people think that the money just wins.
3: Well, I certainly hope not, uh, because uh, the smaller companies can never compete with the big players on money. Uh, I am enough of an optimist, uh, as cynical as I am by dint of being a lawyer, that I really believe in this this case narrative is going to win, that it's just self-evident that the law needs to change in ways that won't compromise these large companies. They're still going to be trillion-dollar market cap companies whether these uh, laws pass or not, but it's going to allow the smaller players uh, more oxygen and a fairer environment, and everybody should be for that. And so we we just think the self-evident nature of this, once people understand what's really happening, is going to carry the day.
1: Patrick, I'm curious for your perspective on this, right? There is the broader perception of the company that you have to tend to, And then there's your time, your your personal time, which between partnerships and thinking about blockchain and looking at the products and dealing with me asking for Atmos support, like I take up a lot of your minutes, right? How do you say, I'm going to go spend my time on this and we're going to devote some percentage of the company's mindset and perception out in the world to this?
2: It is, again, keeping it in perspective of what we're trying to achieve overall. And so that's why you know, 99% of my time goes into innovation, you know, what are we doing for customers, all of those things. And this is something that we feel like we need to do for the greater society, but as well for all of our people, all of the companies trying to to compete, right, all the new startups, and then some of those that have been impacted, right, by the bad actions of some of the players that are here. And so I try to keep it you know pretty focused in terms of the amount of time that i will put into this um it has been pretty minimal from my side because eddie and the team do a great job um on this front so i stay really really focused on that you know strategy side which is largely around the innovation and where we need to take the product roadmap and then as well like i said culture and the culture internally but if i'm you know doing Both of those things, this is part of it, right, is standing up for our people, standing up for the fact that we are inventing things here and that we're not just going to let somebody get away with copying uh, those things. Because, again, you know, at the biggest level, like that's just not the spirit of competition in America at the end of the day. This is this is a place where. You know, we should stand up for what's right. And it is not right if somebody's just going to copy what you make and, you know, try and underprice you and try and drive, you know, companies out of the the space. I, I do feel a responsibility to stand up for that. But my number one responsibility is to the, you know, the to Sonos continuing to grow and innovate. Um, and that's why, um, that's where I spend, you know, 99% of my time.
1: Do you think this, these issues are existential for Sonos or companies like Sonos, like if there is not change, if these lawsuits don't work and get Google to the table appropriately, are these existential issues for you?
2: Um, I think we will continue to innovate and we've kind of, you know, I would say hit an escape velocity that enables us to continue to build on where we are. And I feel very, you know, bullish about the future as I think about the whole size of the audio market and kind of where we are today. We have a ton of runway for growth and we're in a good position you know, I think that we should be paid for our inventions and that should help us hire more people, drive more innovation, you know, and um, that's the right thing from um, kind of overall spirit of what we're trying to do. And I do think it's probably even more existential for a lot of startups, quite frankly, that are trying to, you know, compete and go into new spaces because there's a very clear playbook now where, you know, in these new areas, certain companies will jump in and, you know, they'll use their other kind of dominant monopoly area to cross subsidize and you know really suck the oxygen out of the room in other areas web3 you know might be an area or a metaverse or vr ar whatever whatever you want to talk about and so i do think it's existential as a society that we make sure that we have the right guardrails in place to spur uh, competition and make sure that we can foster innovation in the country so i do think it's existential as a country, that we do that. I guess it's a choice, Neelai, at the end of the day of, you know, are we okay with the ultimate where it is going to be one or two, you know, companies and we all work for those companies and we all buy our stuff from those companies? Or are we going to put guardrails in place which foster competition? And I think the country would be better off with thousands of companies that are innovating and employing more and more people than enabling, you know, all that power in in a few hands. And I think we've always found in history that, it's dangerous to have all that power in just a few hands.
1: All right, well, that's a good place to wrap it up, but we're not going to wrap it up because I'm just going to ask you about new products. I can't, I can't let you go. You said two products a year. Yes. Are you making headphones? When are they coming?
2: We are so excited about our roadmap, Neelah, and oh I can't God. wait to talk to you about it. See, like the, Eddie's
1: proud He's like, he doesn't even need to help. Uh, <laughs> you just bought a company. You bought a company called
2: T2. Is that to help you make headphones? We are working on some really exciting stuff oh that God. I can't wait to tell you about, Eli.
1: <laughs> are you going to support Lossless a- uh, Audio and Apple Music?
2: Um, we are working on some really exciting oh stuff God. that I can't right. wait to tell you about.
1: See, this is like you start doing the lawsuits, you start going to Congress, become a, you're like a... You used to be a person, man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I assure you, All I right. still am a person. I'm just learning. I'm just learning.
1: <laughs> All right, Patrick and Eddie, thank you so much for being on Decoder. This is great.
2: Thanks, thank Deli. You.
1: Thanks again to Patrick Spence and Eddie Lazarus for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder@theverge.com at or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, give us that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott, who's edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our Senior Audio Director is Andrew Marino, and our Executive Producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.